Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. Welcome to FIA Speaks, a global markets podcast. I am Will Ackworth, FIA Senior Vice President of Publications, Data and Research. It's a pleasure to be here and to bring you a discussion about data. In this episode, we're going to talk about reference data. This is the data that we use to classify the futures, options, and swaps as they work their way from the trading desk to the exchanges and then through the clearing process and into the client portfolios. I have to admit, this is not the kind of topic that comes up at your average cocktail party, but I assure you it's hugely important for everyone in the business of trading and clearing derivatives. And I believe it's going to become even more important as the trading process gets more and more automated. Before I introduce our guest, I want to point out that this podcast is sponsored by SmartStream Technologies. Trust your data, accelerate your future potential. More at the website, smartstream-stp.com. With us today is Linda Kaufman, the head of SmartStream's Reference Data Utility, or RDU for short. She's been working in the reference data industry for almost her entire career, including a long stint at Morgan Stanley. And I'm looking forward to hearing her insights on how technology and regulation are changing the way that firms are using reference data. Welcome, Linda, to FIA Speaks. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Let's talk a little about the company you work for, uh, SmartStream RDU and the role you have at the company and how the company got started. Certainly. Um, So the reference data utility uh, is a data integration and data operation service provider. Uh, We source data, normalize, cross-reference that data, cleanse and enrich the data, and then uh, ultimately provide the data to our clients in a very easy format to consume. Uh, the, the, the company got started um, several years ago when a number of tier one banks got together and, uh, you know, scratching their heads saying, we're all doing the same thing. All the functions involved in uh, sourcing, aggregating, cleansing, and maintaining reference data. And so, um, you know, the, the idea was born that they could uh, form a entity and mutualize the cost and the headaches and the expertise that each of them were currently funding and managing separately. Um, At the end of that process of um, when those banks got together, which was called SPREAD, uh, the uh, end result was that Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, and Goldman Sachs uh, selected SmartStream Technologies to develop the technology piece of the reference data utility. Um, which, as you mentioned, is affectionately known as RDU. And uh, today, fast forward to today, um, we're fully a fully owned entity of SmartStream Technologies. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm uh, currently managing that um, RDU business line for the uh, for SmartStream Technologies. So before we get into the discussion about 
how this field is evolving, I should probably start with the basics. <laughs> what is reference data and why is it so important to the firms in this industry? And yeah. it might help if you can think of an analogy in normal life. Okay, I'll do my best. Um, so reference data is basically the data you need to classify, identify, and describe something, right? Um, in our case, as we're talking, it's, uh, it's classify, identify, and describe a financial instrument. Uh, and really, you mentioned it in your intro, reference data is needed at every stop along the trade life cycle. Uh, and I, I don't think everybody can appreciate that. Sometimes when we're sitting with customers um, and, and we say reference data, they'll say market data. And we say, well, it's not pricing data. And uh, when they ask for an example, you know, we start giving out these examples. Well, you know, when you type in that ticker into a, a terminal or you um, have to search for a product, all of those attributes that you're using to identify that product, that's reference data. Um, or that information that you need to settle a trade. Um, if you need calendar um, information for a particular exchange, that is all reference data. So it really gives you the what, the where, and the how. So what am I trading? Uh, you know, for instance, an expiration date, a strike price, um, an underlier, anything that describes the instrument. Uh, where, so maybe as part of reference data, you'll have an exchange code or you'll identify it as an OTC trade um, and how. So what are the settlement rules? Like I mentioned, trading hours, et cetera. Uh, so it, it's really the, the what, where, and how um, that, that describes an instrument. I don't think that it's always been critical, but I'm, uh, you know, I think that, that firms haven't always identified reference data as being critical. Uh, the emphasis in the you know, I'm an old lady, so the emphasis in the past was always around the pricing data, uh, but I think that more and more people are understanding um, what reference data is and how important it is to the, to the life cycle. As far as an analogy goes, I interviewed somebody one day, and uh, one time, it was years ago, uh, and she said, uh, reference data is like a utility. You don't realize that um, something went wrong until your lights are out. So if you have, you know, if you picture it as the electric company, uh, you know, everybody takes uh, it for granted, at least in most parts of the world, that they can flip on the light and the light's going to go on. And I think that, you know, when you're um, executing a trade, when you're um, settling a trade, you're just assuming that the data is going to be there and everything's going to be okay. It's not until something's wrong that you really realize that it's not. So I want to go back in time. Uh, you've been involved with this field for many years. Give us your perspective on what you think was the biggest change in the reference data business since you started. So I think it's the automation. So, uh, you know, if I look back on how we received in any of my roles, whether I was in the on the vendor side or um, at the bank, as you mentioned, I was with Morgan Stanley for a while. Uh, the method that we received and had to move data throughout the firm, um, it, it's just amazing how much that has changed. Uh, I'm really dating myself right now, but uh, I can remember at the first job receiving mortgage data uh, for mortgage-backed securities uh, on big on big disks 
right? That we had a delivery person delivering. Uh, not at, even a floppy disk. You're talking about not even about. a floppy disk. A big, big, uh, yeah. Um, uh, you know, we had file cabinets full of paper prospectuses um, for fixed income instruments. Uh, you know, where that was the only thing you had it delivered in the mail. Um, and now the exchanges in particular have just gotten, you know, slowly but surely. And every year, uh, I'm impressed at how much they've recognize the need for automation and and have um, now have feed reference data specific feeds um, and then internally within firms uh, even the communication between systems the the exchanging of data has just become so automated I think that that's the biggest change since the beginning so let's flip this around and look forward in time what do you see as the biggest trends in the reference data business going forward? From a technology perspective, uh, the biggest change that I've seen over the last few years and then and, and continuing to, to change is the acceptance of having data um, exist on the cloud. Uh, we, we sold our, our MIFID product um, a couple of years ago, 2017, and at that time we were getting some pushback uh, from some of the larger um, organizations because there was still some reluctancy to have uh, information um, as part of their data management system exist on the cloud. And there is a lot less uh, resistance now. People are getting very comfortable with it. And so from a technology perspective, I think the cloud um, will become more and more prominent in the framework of, of their data management system. Also, you know, there's a, a greater emphasis, we talked about automation before, a greater emphasis on automation, which includes um, both the automation of the trade process, but also, uh, again, talking about how we share data back and forth between systems and between vendors, um, the use of, you know, not sending a Excel over an email um, or over your file system, but um, technology such as uh, APIs or tools that allow you to share data on a real-time basis uh, between systems is, is certainly the trend for um, from a technology perspective. And I think on the business side or the, the data side of the house, um, regulation is a huge piece of the puzzle these days, and it's really driving a lot of standardization um, and a lot of new requirements around data, especially in the UK, uh, Amir Refid and MIFID, uh, those regulations. And then here, you know, you have FRTB, et cetera. So there's a lot of regulations out there. They have a big reference data component, which you haven't seen in the past. And so as those regulations continue to mature, uh, I think you'll see data management systems maturing as well. So I want to dive in a little bit on that example you gave of MIFID. Uh, which stands for the Markets in Financial Instruments Directive, I believe. Correct. <laughs> so can you give me some examples or give our listeners some examples of how MIFID and its requirements generate a greater need for reference data? Is it because people have to do more reporting or is it because they have to provide more information to their customers or, or is there something else? driving factor behind MIFID was is around transparency. Uh, and the regulator requires both the actual report 
that that um, companies need to report to the regulator, that the, the information that they're sending to the regulator now, uh, it, it requires a whole bunch more uh, reference data fields attributes. Um, but also, in order to determine if you have to report or not, uh, it also requires a whole bunch of reference data. So it's both on the determining your obligation to report and also what you're actually reporting. Uh, and, and the ultimate goal um, with, you know, good in mind um, is, is to ensure that there's transparency in the market. And in the case of MIFID and derivatives in particular, uh, the trickiest aspect, I believe, for derivatives is the classification scheme that, that the regulator has put forth. So for derivatives, um, the obligation to report is really based on the classification, not necessarily the actual contract. And so uh, there was a need across the industry to get down to a very, very granular level of classification in the MIFID um, world in order to determine, again, both obligation to report, but also what needs to be reported. And, and it became very, very complex um, uh, and, and caused some headaches, but it, it also, I think, is driving um, better classifications within the firms. Is there anything like that classification scheme in other jurisdictions, or is that kind of a unique thing with Europe? I would say that there's other jurisdictions and other with a classification component, but I've never seen one as granular as the MIFID. So that brings me to, you know, a really obvious problem, which is the lack of standardization. Well, from a variety of sources, you start with the exchanges. Here in our world, um, there are, oh, depending on how you calculate it, roughly 60, 70, or even 80 exchanges around the world that are offering futures and options. And then you have examples like when you gave of regulatory mandates. Here in the US, you have the, the CFTC and the SEC. And in Europe, you have MIFID, but you have these other regulations as well. And then I'm imagining that you also have various data vendors uh, with their own unique symbologies. You see across many different asset classes, but how would you characterize the listed derivatives world compared to say equities or fixed income in terms of the degree of standardization or lack of standardization? Yeah, by far it's the most complicated uh, for sure. Um, and I think to some degree it's the nature of the beast, right? So uh, with derivatives, we're always dealing with two levels of data, the, the product or contracts, but then you also have that underlying piece. And it's almost like you have two instruments combined. So for example, you've got futures on copper. Okay, that's the instrument. But you also have the copper itself and the exactly. specifications around how many particles of this or that make up that copper. Exactly. And most other asset classes don't have that complexity. You know, you have so you have the market identifiers at the derivatives or the overlying, as we call it, overlying piece of, of the reference data. Uh, so you have market identifiers, as you mentioned, you have vendor identifiers, you have exchange symbology, but then you also have all of that possibly at the underlying level. Um, so, you know, your example of copper, a lot of the commodities are not standardized. Um, a lot of the, you know, metals can be uh, uh, there's a bunch of classifications for metals, right? And and yep. who is who is saying that everybody is using this the same representation for each type of those metals? When you get to underliers that are more um, securities driven, under an equity underlier, that may in in and of itself have 
an Eisen, a QCIP, a you know, a Rick, a Bloomberg ID, you name it, it could it could have its own 20 attributes that define the the underlier. So it's a complexity. And um, you know, derivatives didn't have a market identifier, the overlier, so the actual derivative didn't really have ISINs or or a, a standard market identifier until recently. And I think that that was probably four or five years ago, that was the biggest headache, <laughs> was that there was no um, market identifier um, regulations. We're getting there to where more and more exchanges are publishing an ISIN associated with a, with a derivative, but um, it's still complex because of that multi-layer of data. You know, from your perspective, what is the impact on the, the people who trade these derivatives and clear them and are involved in the industry in some way, what's the impact on having such a, a sort of tower of Babel in terms of all these, uh, of the lack of standardization? Is it kind of an annoying thing that just slows things down a little bit, but it's just, you can live with it like a, you know, a faucet that's dripping, or is this really something that, that holds back certain types of initiatives? So there's two elements of this, right? It, it's a cost to the institutions for sure, because uh, you know we had one case study where um, we're talking millions of dollars um, spent on correcting exceptions in order to get that through the life of the trade. Um, and so millions and millions of dollars on just clearing breaks because of things like missing symbology or um, incorrect uh, integration with systems. Um, and then you have the other side of it where if you don't have that reference data appropriately set up or even maybe missing for start of day trading, your team's missing out on actually being able to conduct the trade. So reference data really is at the core on both sides. It's a, you know, you have to pay attention to it and get it right or else it's going to cost you a lot of overhead from a, an operational perspective, cost perspective, but also you're going to miss out on business if you can't trade it for starters, but then if you can't send it, so if you can't clear it, if you can't, it's a domino effect if you are not starting with good reference data. You know, right now our industry is benefiting from a tremendous increase in trading volume. There was a huge surge, uh, I guess a little over a year and a half ago when the pandemic suddenly caused a shutdown of the economies and a lot of market participants rapidly adjusted their positions and sent a huge surge of trading activity through the markets. At first, I'll be honest, I, I thought that was just going to be a temporary thing. Um, but in fact, now we actually have even significantly higher volume now than we had then. At the same time, you know, you have the whole work from home and this tremendous push for digitalization. How have those things affected uh, the reference data business, in your opinion? The pandemic itself led to firms really giving a lot of attention to their BAU, right? So to make sure that their operations teams and their technology teams were able to connect from home and be up and running and support the business. Uh, but then all of a sudden, um, the volume started going through the roof. and. Um, I think that's when everyone gave pause to uh, really looking at the number of people that they had, you know, handling all of the exceptions, all of the product setups, and and, and dealing with the volume. Uh, you know, they have X amount of people um, assigned to to doing all that work, and all of a sudden the volumes are through the roof. And especially, I think it was challenging during the pandemic because you weren't 
able to necessarily run out to the market and hire new people right away. It was a little bit hard in the beginning. So uh, I think that um, this is where automation really paid off. So those firms that were highly automated uh, dealt much better with the with the increase in, in volumes. And those firms that were really counting on human intervention to manage a lot of the increase in volume, I think they uh, they definitely struggled a bit more. We heard a lot of feedback from member firms and others that the systems we all rely on to process trades after they've been executed really slowed down during those sort of peak uh, periods of, of trading activity right around the pandemic. And I think, I think I'm agreeing with you. I think there was a kind of recognition that uh, a rethink was needed. And I know some firms have come to FI and said, hey, maybe there's a role here for the FIA to take a lead on nudging the industry collectively towards uh, more standardization and more modern approaches to how we use technology to process trades. Uh, in other words, a kind of more efficient back office. And if I, just speaking personally, if I think about where all the excitement's been over the last 20 or 30 years, it's all been on the, the flashy stuff on the front end, right? A faster trading system, a, a better execution management system, algos and all the rest. But it really seems like the tables have turned and there's a lot more interest in getting the back end, all that stuff that happens after the trade is done to work more efficiently. Uh, to generate kind of faster responses for the clients, to allocate trades more quickly, uh, and to automate that to a much greater degree. So you don't have to have a human being matching up an individual trade with an individual customer. Anyway, that's been my sort of perspective on this. And I, my sense is that reference data has a really big role to play in that, because that way you can match these things up much more easily. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And I would dig my heels in even further because I also think that all of those um, shiny bells and whistles that you were talking about, they weren't mostly on the on the front end, but they were also in the reg tech space. So you were having new middle office solutions come, you know, whether it be margin risks software or tools for clearing, et cetera, and so forth. You have all these new shiny things out there that, that people can, can take advantage of, new products. But in order for all of those products to talk to one another, you need data, reference data. So I think that, you know, things were built uh, and they, they're really wonderful. Um, I'm not taking anything away from them. It's, it, they're really great specialized tools that the firms can use to make the whole trade process faster, better. Uh, but in order to make all those fancy things talk to one another now, you need clean reference data. Um, and so I think that it's put a spotlight on on the reference data even more. And then secondly, just um, to close that thought, I also think that machine learning has had a big influence too. Hmm. So if you're going to ask a machine to learn, um, it's kind of like when your kids are growing and you give them veggies and, and uh, you know, you put the good stuff in so that, so that, um, so that they're healthy. If you're going to get a healthy output from machine learning, then you need to put in clean data or else it's going to come out with the wrong answer. So I think between integration benefits and the machine learning, I think those two things had a really big influence on, on the focus changing a bit. Absolutely. Just to give you one data point, looking at the FI report 
on exchange traded volume for the month of August 20, what year is this, 2021. <laughs> um, there was 5.29 billion contracts executed across uh, various exchanges around the world. That's in a single month. And you think, whatever happened to those summer lulls when people yeah. would say, ah, I can finally catch up on all the <laughs> stuff I had to put off. And we, actually, that was the second highest monthly total that we've ever seen. It's crazy. Yep. Yep. And all of that comes with a cost, right? Um, it's wonderful, but it comes with a cost. Exactly. So you mentioned machine learning, which is part of this broader trend towards the greater deployment of artificial intelligence. Where do you see machine learning impacting the reference data business? You've already mentioned one example, which is that, you know, that classic principle, garbage in, garbage out. You've got to have clean data in order to train those models. Do you see other areas where machine learning is being deployed? I keep going back to, to breaks and exceptions because um, I think that that's at the heart of what we have to uh, minimize. Um, but I, we, we do see machine learning in uh, reconciliations, uh, machine learning on the data quality side, um, so from a reference data perspective, I think that the most fitting areas um, in that space for machine learning um, to, you know, to leverage machine, machine learning is in the um, exception management and reconciliation spaces. Interesting. So if you had a magic wand and can change anything, any one thing across this industry, what would it be? This is a hard question, um, but I think, and I, I, I'm going to sound like I'm repeating a little bit, but uh, ensuring that firms devote enough time and resources to data quality. So I, I've been doing this a long time, as you mentioned in the earlier um, in the introduction, and it's a little depressing at times um, that we're still having some of the conversations that we're having. And maybe it's because how I, much I've been in the weeds of data for so long that I don't understand how others don't see that the, you know, how important reference data is. But if I could wave my magic wand, it would be to come up with some tool that could easily show them every person that's touching and all the impacts throughout their firm of bad data, because I think it would be so much easier than to have the focus shift. Um, but I think that at times um, it's really a challenge to uh, expose that to, to firms. So that would be my that would be my magic wand. It would be to easily be able to show somebody um, the impact of the bad data in their firm to get them to shift their focus and resources to correcting it. It's almost like uh, if you could trace the journey that a a coin takes yeah. as it goes from hand to hand, store to store, and, and it, as it travels perhaps around the country or even across the world, the same, in the same way that piece of bad data travels through one department to the next inside a firm and then over to the next firm and on to the exchange and, and on from there. Exactly. Exactly. Well, look. This has been a really interesting conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with us uh, on FI Speaks uh, Global Markets Podcast. I also want to say thanks to our sponsor, SmartStream, and to our audience for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback and your suggestions at fiaspeaks at fi.org. 
Take care and thanks again, Linda. Thank you. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at fiaspeaks at fia.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.